Welcome to the McCarthy Report, the podcast where I, Rich Lowry, discuss with Andy McCarthy the latest legal and national security issues. This week, what else? The latest on Donald Trump being struck from the ballot. By the way, for some reason you're not already following us on streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And please give this podcast and Andy McCarthy the glowing, indeed gushing, five-star reviews they deserve on iTunes. And now, without further ado, I welcome to this very podcast through the miracle of Riverside, none other than Andy McCarthy. Rich, how are you? Good. We haven't talked, at least not on this podcast in a while. Well, happy twenty twenty four. Same to you. Yeah. Do you know? I I realized this morning um, that we started the podcast in twenty eighteen during the uh, during the Mueller during the Mueller investigation, which now yeah, yeah. feels like two civil wars ago. Yeah. Um, but uh, who, That's, uh, who who'd have thought we'd sad. still be talking about the same thing, Rich? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it adds up quickly. So. Yeah, so we're still talking about Trump controversies and overreach by Trump's adversaries. So we've been off uh, two or three weeks here, and a lot, of course, has happened. It's always famous last words, Andy. I, when when we were figuring out our, our schedule and deciding to take two weeks off, like I, you know, I think things are going to settle down. I can't, I can't remember how many times you've said that and been wrong. It's, it's a little bit like you saying, "Oh, I knew that guy back in the day. He's great. It's <laughs> <laughs> <He plays> great. <laughs> Never Kiss turns out." Like, <laughs> yeah, but the first week we took off, like immediately, you know, the, the day we would have recorded or whatever, he was, or I guess maybe the day after, maybe it was a Friday. I forget. It all runs together. But he was struck. The Colorado Supreme Court decision came down. And of course, we've had this um, unimpressive person in, in Maine follow suit. But uh, let's let's go to Colorado where Trump has appealed, but you know, he didn't appeal immediately. It seems a, a bit odd, but what's the state of play there? So I, I think, Rich, this is a really important issue uh, because of the the stakes are much wider than I think people appreciate on first blush because we've spoken so much about Colorado and now um, Maine. And I think as, as far as before I forget to say this later on, um, it, amazingly, our Dan McLaughlin already has a, uh, a post up this morning uh, outlining Trump's appeal of the Colorado case, which everybody should look at. He's done the best work of anybody, I think, on the planet in terms of breaking this down in terms of its parts. But I think this is so important because it's the kind of thing that once it gets traction, it could really snowball unless the Supreme Court jumps in and decides it. Mm -hmm. uh, the news I saw yesterday indicated that there are some 33 lawsuits, I'm, I'm sorry, 33 states already have litigation at some stage or another uh, involving Trump. Um, my uh, friend and colleague, uh, John Turley, has a piece in the New York Post today talking about how it's now not Trump anymore or Trump alone. This isn't exactly the newest news, but it's the it, this is the leading edge of it. There was a motion in Pennsylvania made this week to knock Scott Perry off the ballot um, in Pennsylvania. Uh, Democrats have previously targeted, I think, 126 congressional Republicans who in one way or another supported the Stop the Steal stuff. Uh, and that stuff is now going to, this whole issue obviously has 
a kind of attraction. I think probably after um, after those two conservative scholars kind of revitalized it in that uh, in that piece they did about a year ago. Um, it's really gotten turbocharged in a way I think it wasn't right at the time of the uh, of the Capitol riot impeachment. But we should remember that in the Capitol riot impeachment, there was a provision in there where the Democrats who wrote the the article um, mention uh, Section Three of Article Four uh, of uh, the Fourteenth Amendment. So it was obviously something that was in their mind to exploit. But I think it has a new. Now that they're getting some traction with the courts, it's got a new energy to it, and we're going to see a lot more of these uh, cases. And I think you know you're going to have a lot of conservative or or Republican activists, particularly in Trump world, who are not going to just sit around and take this, uh, especially given that their theory is like to beat the Democrats, you have to be the Democrats, right, or fight like the Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you know any minute now you're going to see lawsuits in other states trying to knock Democrats, maybe even Kamala Harris, for example, off the ballot uh, in connection with their support of the Black Lives Matter riots after George Floyd's death in 2020 on the theory that that was an insurrection. So I I think it's really important at this this stage that we're going to have things really careen out of control if the court doesn't jump in and, and resolve this. And I think it's critical to do it now because it seems to me that this is just stage one of what would be a two-stage process. So some of the petitions, let's take Minnesota, for example. Um, Some of the petitions are directed at getting Trump knocked off the ballot for the primary, which kicks down the road the question whether you would have him kicked off the ballot in the November election. So in Minnesota, for example... They rejected the claim of the progressive activists who wanted to get Trump knocked off the ballot uh, for purposes of the primary. But the court said, we don't need to decide now um, whether this disqualifies him or doesn't um, for purposes of the November election because those are different issues. And there's a First Amendment issue when you're dealing with the primaries about whether a political party is entitled to nominate whoever they want to be on the ballot, including someone who's not eligible to be president. Um, so I, I just fear, and Dan says the same thing, I think, you know, I just fear if they don't step up to the plate and resolve this now as reluctant as they are, and as much as I can completely understand that they don't want to get themselves weighted into the, uh, the issues of the 2024 election, and the country shouldn't want the Supreme Court any more involved in the election than it needs to be. But this has to be resolved. It's a judicial issue, uh, and they're the ones who have to resolve it. And I think if they don't, and you allow 50 states to make up their own ad hoc procedures on the fly in circumstances where we have people like this uh, Secretary of State who you mentioned in Maine, who are just going to take it on themselves without even a judicial proceeding, without any judicial check or anything else, they're just going to take it on themselves to knock him you know, to knock people off the ballot, you're going to have chaos. And we have such an explosive political context for this election. I just don't think we can afford chaos. So to uh, stick a pin on this one, just for, for a second, we were talking about this with colleagues yesterday. And I asked, so, so why wouldn't the Supreme Court just say, this is a political question? We don't, you know, it's, it's, it's up for the states to, to decide. 
Well, techni- uh, usually with respect to the 14th Amendment, think about all of the different uh, rights that come out of the, f- the 14th Amendment, including uh, individual rights. And here we're talking about the right of people to run for president. It's not just like a, you know, the right of a state to conduct an election the way they want to. This is an individual right to run for president. The, the Supreme Court hasn't shied away from any other of the you know array of rights that are granted in the 14th Amendment, or at least protected in the 14th Amendment on the grounds that there are political questions involved. Uh, Trump does have a right to run for president. You know, he's qualified other than, you know, the controversy over this, the qualifications for running for president in the United States are minimal. So you have an individual rights issue here of a person who is qualified otherwise to run for president, uh, who's being knocked off the ballot uh, without any due process. And the big, you know, I think there's a number of issues that we can talk about with respect to the to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. To me, I mean, I have a textual problem with this before you even get into the fact-finding stuff, but I think the biggest thing here is the lack of due process. You know, the idea, the default position in federal law, let's, let's put the 14th Amendment aside for a second. The default position in federal law is that if somebody has a constitutional right and you're going to argue that some statute or some constitutional provision takes that right away, the default position is that it has to be clear. It has to be crystal clear from the terms of the provision that it was the intention to take away that person's rights. So now think about what we're talking about here. From 1787 until the 14th Amendment was enacted and then beyond, um, everybody has understood that the qualifications for the presidency of the United States are that a person has to be 35, a natural-born citizen, and resident in the United States for 14 years. Um, And everybody thought, at least until five minutes ago, that those were the only qualifications, that if a state tried to enact a law that added extra qualifications, you wouldn't be able to do that because the Constitution sets the qualifications. Now, the theory they're propounding here is that there's a new qualification or a new disqualification Um, that arises out of the 14th Amendment, which was enacted at the end of uh, the 1860s, right? Um, Where you can't be president if you've participated in an insurrection, notwithstanding that the the amendment doesn't apply, at least as I read it, literally to presidents, um, and doesn't, uh, doesn't enunciate any procedure for how you make the finding of insurrection or the findings of insurrection, because there's two big ones, right? you got to prove there was an insurrection, and you have to prove that the person engaged in it. Um, all of a sudden, now after two centuries, we're saying, you know, gee, there's another qualification for the presidency here, that, and Trump doesn't meet it because he engaged in, a, in an insurrection. That's a very novel theory, and generally speaking, we don't think when co- fundamental constitutional rights are at stake that they can be removed without a provision being crystal clear and importantly, without there being some due process 
that is fit for whatever it is that's being removed. So for example, in the criminal justice system, you can lose your life, liberty, or property based on the accusation of a crime, right? So we don't allow, you know, we don't allow a um, a government attorney to make a pronouncement that you committed a serious felony and then have them court you off to jail, right? There's a big step in between. They have to go to court and they have to prove in a uh, detached process before before a different branch of the government under a high standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt that you committed the crime. And absent all the due process that we provide for that, they can't take your liberty away. And what the Democrats are saying here is that you can have an elected Democrat with no due process say, abracadabra, Trump's off the ballot, and that's good enough. And to me, that's inconceivable. So, <clears throat> by the way, she, she's she's elected by the legislature. Uh, when, when I saw I saw in your notes elected, I was like, wait a minute, I thought she was appointed. And I've I've been uh, searching it during a couple of your answers, <laughs> and yep. uh, people always say elected by the legislature. So I guess I guess there's actual a, a vote of the legislature the way you know they they used to uh, legislatures used to elect senators. But obviously the point. Point still holds. So let's. Well, first of all, let me do, uh, pause and do an NR plus plug, and then let's get into the, more, the specifics, uh, more specifics of why you think this is just a, a, a bad, a, a bad call on the merits and a, a gross misinterpretation of Article Three of the Fourteenth Amendment. NR plus, of course, digital s- subscription service at nationalreview.com. Your way around our metered paywall. Your free ticket. Well, not quite free. You got to pay a little bit, but your ticket to read all our content that you want without any interruption to read all the Andy McCarthy you want <clears throat> all the other valuable <clears throat> material we are publishing on an hourly basis at NRO and also if it floats your boat you can uh, dig deeper into our community comment on our articles and blog posts get invited to exclusive calls and events with our writers and editors and other conservative figures it's a great deal all around and also very very importantly a crucial way to support our valuable journalism so Andy first off you don't think this provision applies uh, to to presidents, which um, I, I don't know where it was, <clears throat> whether it was just someone commenting on this or whether some the Colorado Supreme Court had this in their opinion or what. But uh, the counter argument is, well, wait a minute, you're saying it it, it applies to all these inferior officers, uh, but not to the the most important, you know, elected official in the United right. States. He or she can commit. Uh, insurrection against the the United States government, and then and then waltz right back into office again. Well, I, I'm not. <laughs> my objection here, just to go to what I think the Supreme Court says when they get questions like that, is the first thing you're supposed to look at is the text. I'm not mm-hmm. supposed to read the minds of the people who wrote the text. I have to read what they wrote first, right? Uh, and I'm not allowed, even if I think. And I think the point you just made, logically, that makes a lot of sense. I could see the pushback being, well, you know, unlike all the other officials who are mentioned in Article 14, in, a ver- in uh, Amendment 14, in a very specific way, by the, by the way, which I'll get back to, but none of them are nationally elected officials. The only one who would be elected by the whole country is the president. So maybe they thought that, you know, that made a difference. I don't know. Um, but courts... Uh, are not supposed to substitute their logic and their rationales for what the words of the provision are. 
Now the mm-hmm. provision here's the here's the categories of people who are disqualified. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress, very specific, mm-hmm. or and this is the one that really gets me, or an elector of the president and vice president. Um none none of those uh, offices. Those are the offices that the disqualification applies to. Now, uh, so why, an elector meaning the elector the electoral college. An electoral correct. college. Yeah. So why would you why would you mention the electors of the pre- president and vice president and not simply say the president and the vice president? Mm-hmm. Since the office we're talking about is president and vice president. So you mean to tell me they went through the tr- trouble of making sure you could disqualify the electors who were going to vote? But not the not the office holder, and they met, they they made they took pains to mention senators and representatives in Congress, but not the president and the vice president. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a major omission. Now it could be that you know I guess the pushback could be well uh, under the way elections were at least when the Constitution was first uh, uh, ratified and when the Fourteenth Amendment was ratified. If you were talking about electors of the president or the vice president, uh, you had the the office, the underlying office covered. I don't think that's true. I think electors for the president and the vice president were state officials, just like senators. I don't mean, I mean they were they were specific to states. That we're talking federal offices here, but just like senators and representatives of, of Congress, they were specific to states. Whereas mm-hmm. the president. And the vice president hold nationwide. They're they're elected by the whole country, unlike uh, right. these other offices. So, I don't know. To me, that's a major omission. Yeah, but, yeah um, and, and it may reflect right that uh, I, I have no idea. I I do not know the history, but it may reflect that they thought, understandably, that this was a state problem. This is a problem in certain states, right? This is right. a countrywide problem. The, the country wasn't going to elect uh, Jeff Davis as president of the United States. Right. And therefore, you could omit the office of president and not worry about it because at, I don't remember how many states were in the union in 1870 or thereabouts, but um, I, I believe it was 10 states were in the con- Confederacy, 10, 10 states seceded. So you had a built in majority for the union. You would think that anybody, you know, anybody, um, you had a, you were not going to have a majority candidate more than likely who was tainted with the insurrection of the, of the civil war. But you know, we're, we're spitballing rich because we don't really know, but we're saddled with this text. And what the Supreme court tells us is the first thing that you always look at is the text. I look at the text. I don't, I don't see president in there. And, and president, the president is not an officer of the United States. Yes, so that's the the second thing. And now I should point out to people because I have such respect for his views on this. I I don't think Dan and I are in the same place on whether it applies to the president or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he thinks it does apply to the president. I I don't. I agree with everything else he says, but I don't I don't agree with that part of it. But the thing I think most people have homed in on, and uh, the best thing I've seen on this in in the uh, uh, in the popular media is Judge Mukasey's op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. But basically, what, what the what the provision goes on to say um, is for those offices that we just mentioned that the disqualification applies to, um, if you're a person 
who, having previously taken an oath to support the Constitution as a member of the legislature of any state or as an executive or judicial official, or, and this is the important part, as an officer of the United States. So if you've taken an oath as an officer of the United States and you've participated in, they said the word is engaged, in uh, an insurrection or rebellion, you can be disqualified. Um, So in federal law, an officer of the United States is an appointed official, not an elected official. And the, the reason that people have homed in on that is the the provision that the Democrats who are who are pushing this and others who have pushed it, um, what they're what they're arguing is that Trump was an officer of the United States as the chief executive of the executive branch, and he took an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, the presidential oath that's prescribed in the in the Constitution. Um, so they say that that is enough to qualify him for this disqualification. Um, but it hinges, if you don't buy my argument that it doesn't apply to the presidency at all, then the next question is it hinges on whether he was an officer of the United States. And as Judge Mukasey uh, argues, and I think correctly, uh, he cites a number of Supreme Court cases, including one written fairly recently by, by uh, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, an officer of the United States is an appointed official. The president is basically the official who appoints officers of the United States. In federal law, he's not deemed to be an officer of the United States. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's the argument. And then, and then we have the the uh, two big questions: what's an in- insurrection, and what constitutes engaging in an insurrection? Yeah. I, so, you know, we we've talked about insurrection a lot. And I just want to I want to point to one other bit of the text of this amendment because I think this shows the gravity of what you're talking about. Um, in that same provision, Rich, where they they talk about shall have engaged in an insurrection or rebellion, the next thing they say is or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, meaning the enemies of the United States. Now, we have enemies of the United States in wartime. You know, basically, enemies of the United States when you're when you're dealing in a in a legal context like this is a reference to a period of hostilities where you have enemies, generally foreign enemies, right? The treason provision in the Constitution talks about giving aid and comfort to enemies of the United States, meaning you have to be in hostilities in order for that to even kick in, right? And the reason I want to highlight that is. When Abraham Lincoln talked about insurrection, he talked about the Civil War, you know, something that was extensive in time and space where at least 600,000 Americans were killed, right? I think there's a case for saying the Whiskey Rebellion was an insurrection. You know, it was, it was, will it go on for three years? I mean, it was pretty mm-hmm. extensive. Uh, and the Union actually raised an army to, to put it down, at which George Washington almost led at one point. Uh, while he was president. So, you know, I, I think that that clause re- referring to uh, giving aid and comfort to enemies, while it doesn't directly uh, relate to what happened on January 6th, 
is relevant here because it it's underscores yet again the kind of a serious threat to the United States that we have to be ta- uh, talking about for this to be even relevant. Um, and I just think, you know, as, as a terrorism prosecutor, maybe I can analogize it this way. I don't like murder, obviously, but I don't trivialize terrorism by saying that anytime there's a single murder, that's a, an act of terrorism. It could be under some circumstances, but you know, for the most part, terrorism, we're talking about mass murder attacks. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't um it it, it doesn't undercut the severity of a murder to say, you know, it's not a terrorist attack, but it's something that's very serious and that the law punishes very seriously as it should. And I think analogously, I, I'm really tired of, of like every time I talk about January 6th having to say, you know, it was a terrible thing. It was a riot. Why do we have to say that? Riot is self-evidently a terrible thing. The fact that it's not an insurrection doesn't mean that you're excusing the conduct. I'm, I would be given a standing ovation to every 10-year sentence that got handed out to somebody who hit a cop with a flagpole on, in the Capitol riot. When I was a prosecutor, I was like the Attila the Hun of prosecutors on that kind of stuff. I don't have to be convinced that a riot is very serious. It's not an insurrection. You know, democracy was not hanging by a thread. Uh, The Democrats have, along with the court, particularly the D.C. District Court, have been able to advance a uh, a narrative, a a political narrative, along the lines of January 6th was an event of the of similar severity to the Civil War, to 9-11, to Pearl Harbor. Because of the target, because it happened on the grounds of the Capitol. Now, you know, a lot of bad stuff has happened on the grounds of the Capitol in American history, and this was far from the worst of it. You know, the the FALN terrorists, for example, shot people in the Capitol in the, uh, it was at the 1970s. Um, We had terrorist organizations, left-wing terrorist organizations, bombing government facilities in the 1970s. And the bombings were fairly, you know, common things. There was one year in the 1970s when we had 2,000 bombings in the United okay. States. Now, none of, not a single one of them was a 9-11 or world, right. you know, 1996 World Trade Center style bombing, but they were, some of them were pretty serious. Yeah. Um, we didn't call any of those insurrections. Um, so we're talking about, I don't mean to, again, to trivialize it, a riot's a riot's a very serious thing. A lot of cops got very seriously, you know, 140 cops got hurt. Nobody got killed. You know, Officer Sicknick, they haven't been able to um, to prove that his death a day and a half after this all happened was caused by uh, what happened that day. And in fact, they've even prosecuted two people for assaulting Officer Sicknick. They didn't charge either one of them with murder. Because the Justice Department can't prove them. If they could prove it, they would charge it. You know, it embarrasses mm-hmm. them to call this an insurrection. And there's only like 10 people charged with having weapons, you know, guns, firearms. Um, so, you know, look, we're talking about a two and a half to three hour riot. And look, the, the, the violent part of it was at the beginning of it. At a certain point, the cops were so overwhelmed, they started to wave people into the Capitol because they figured that was the best way to decompress the situation, right? But we're talking about something that was limited in time and space 
to the point that Congress was able to convene that night. It didn't even stop them from certifying Biden that night. Um, so that's that's my long-winded way of saying I think an insurrection has to be something that's much more serious in time and space than what happened here. So, so you're and, saying that the drafters of this provision were, were not thinking that just whatever CNN calls an insurrection qualifies as, a, <laughs> as an insurrection? Yeah. Yeah, I think their I think their life experience I think their life experience was was like the Civil War, not CNN. But what do I yeah. know? You know, and um, and, and engage it, it involves a uh, it is more than merely in, incitement, and and it wasn't even incitement that Trump Trump and yeah. So this is rich, this is really I mean you know I feel like you know sometimes on uh, on the podcast I feel like I go on and on about things I've gone on and on about. But this was my pet peeve during the January 6th committee hearings, and I think it has continued in these no-due-process proceedings in connection with Maine and Colorado in particular, in connection with the, um, with the claim that Trump is disqualified. Because what they do is they either take a cribbed version of what Trump said in his ellipse speech, where they completely omit the fact that he said we're going to march uh, peacefully and patriotically to the Capitol, right? Now, if I was a prosecutor trying to put together an insurrection case or an incitement case, and I had that piece of evidence, that would be the end. I would not charge the case, which is why with 1,200 people charged, the Justice Department hasn't charged Trump with incitement and hasn't charged anyone with insurrection because- they don't have it, right? And with Trump, they'd love to charge Trump, but they they don't have the peace that, that connects them to the violence. So the next thing they say, because this is not a jury trial now, right? They're making it up as they go along. They say, well, you know, look, even if he used the word peacefully, that was very, you know, it was one of these tongue-in-cheek things. Um, he just said it to get it on the record to make it difficult for people like me to find he incited. Um, and we're going to look at like the full trajectory of his behavior here. And the bottom line is, everybody says this, he incited the riot by whipping up his base with claims that the election was stolen over a period of two months. That's true. But that doesn't mean that you're guilty of incitement. I think it makes him politically culpable of incitement. I think it makes him morally culpable of incitement. But but in the legal framework, you have to prove that somebody intentionally wanted violence that was likely to happen. And they don't have that. And the only the reason that we're they're relying on, you know, democratic office holders and democratic controlled high courts and states to do this without trials is because they can't prove it. If they could prove it, they would have indicted Trump. The Justice Department would love to indict Trump for this. If you look at Jack Smith's indictment of Trump on the uh, election interference case, he's got a whole bunch of stuff in the last like six or seven pages that he tucks into the indictment about the riot because he's desperate to get the violence of the riot into the case. But his problem is he can't charge Trump with a crime because he doesn't have it. So I, I think the best work that's been done on engaged in insurrection, once again, is Dan. And as he points out, the, he actually looked at the cases 
because um, this provision was used contemporaneously uh, with the, the time period where it was first um, ratified. It was used to knock a number of people off ballots. Naturally, because there were so many thousands of uh, people who were associated with the Confederacy in one way or another. And what Dan says is the jurisprudence that develops out of that time is that it's not enough to do incitement. There actually has to be an active insurrection, and then you have to do something to engage in it while it's going on. Otherwise, you haven't engaged in an insurrection. But I don't think you even get there because the main Again, leaving aside that it wasn't an insurrection, the main thing they have Trump doing is inciting it. And I don't think legally he incited it. And I, what you have when you have these political actors and politically motivated actors start to make these findings, they're making the findings on the basis of what their political narrative is rather than what you would have to prove in a court of law under due process rules to show that this guy was guilty of insurrection. Um, we don't know a lot about Trump's state of mind, except for he, he didn't seem you know very unhappy about what was happening, and and obviously is watch, watching it on on TV, not doing much. But but we do know you know the state of mind of you know, Don Jr. And, and folks like that who are at the very center of the deliberations all along. And as soon as the violence started, they're like, no, 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 wait a minute, this isn't what we meant. You know, we didn't want this to happen. It's got to stop. Right. Um, and then, I, and then I, yeah, I was going to say, just re- reacting to your point, I, I think this is, you know, all the things that are said about why Trump is just an unstable actor. I think the fact that he mentioned peacefully marched in his speech indicates that he knew it was important to to make that point. Mm-hmm. But he so can't get over himself that once the violence started and he realized that it w- people were being violent for him. He couldn't bring right. himself to condemn it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And and you know what you were saying earlier about a riot. You you know a riot is bad. A riot's b- bad by def- definition. I mean that's my attitude too. Is one of the reasons I'm a conservative. And and my attitude is is if someone riots, they're not our people. But unfortunately, a lot of the right and President Trump, their attitude is these are our people. So it's okay that they rioted or we have to find a yep. way to, to ex- excuse it or, or minimize it, which, uh, well, well, it's because of the, but, but it's, it's also let's, let's, you know, to give them their due, not that that point should get much due. Um, the context for that is months of rioting, which was much more yep. violent than January 6th, uh, and, and much more extensive in time and space that went on in the lead up to what became the Capitol riot, which, you know, the Democrats and law enforcement in big cities basically turned a blind eye to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I don't know that he's, I don't know that he's, well, I don't know what goes on in his mind, but I don't know that they're saying objectively a riot is okay. I think what they're saying is, you know, a riot may be a bad thing, but you got to look at what, what all these, what these people did and got away with. Right. Our riot was not as as, as your riot. Yeah, and there there is truth to that. So fi- final point on the merits of, of this one before we get to the immunity argument, um, so the self-executing, the question of whether you need some sor- sort of congressional uh, act here or whether this uh, Secretary of State in Maine can just kind of re- read the 14th Amendment and, and act on it on her own. Yeah, so I thought that um, – Bill Barr writes a, an op-ed for the Free Press 
uh, was it last week uh, or in the last few days, actually. Uh, and he was really good on this. But basically what he points out is that there's a Supreme Court case from 1869. Uh, it's I'm sorry, it's not a Supreme Court case, but it's a case that's written. Remember, the justices used to ri- used to ride uh, circuit in those days, right? So the chief justice of the Supreme Court in 1869 was Salmon Chase. And he writes a case um, when he's riding circuit in Virginia called In Re Griffin in, ni- in 1869, in which he rules that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is not self-executing, which means there has to be legislation which puts into force a process for enforcing it. And what Bill argues is that the following year after that decision, Congress did indeed enact what was known as the Enforcement Act of 1870. I think it's interesting, Rich, because 1870 just happens also to be the year the Justice Department was established. Uh, But one of the provisions of this law, it had two main provisions, Barr argues. One is they created a civil lawsuit that was going to be enforced by federal attorneys. And the reason I think federal attorneys, that caught my eye, it's because you're starting to get the thought process of how the Justice Department develops. We really don't have like an organized set of um, federal attorneys like uh, like we have after uh, 1870 and certainly like we have today. But one provision was a civil provision that created a lawsuit for federal attorneys to enforce the provision. But you'd have to prove it by a civil standard of proof, which is preponderance of the evidence. You'd actually have to go into court and prove that somebody had engaged uh, in an insurrection. The other provision, at, with respect to, let me just finish with the civil provision, that went into effect in 1870. It was then repealed by Congress in the 20th century, I believe. And I don't, why it was repealed, I don't know, but it was repealed. Um, that leaves us with the second provision from the Enforcement Act of 1870, and that was a criminal action, which, as Barr points out, evolved into what today is section 2383 of the U.S. Code, which makes it a crime to engage in insurrection or rebellion. So putting that all together, the idea is the statute's not self-executing. Section 5 of the the 14th Amendment empowers Congress to enact legislation to enforce the provisions of the 14th Amendment. They put into effect in 1870 a provision that created a civil suit and a criminal suit to enforce the amendment. The civil suit is no longer in existence because it was repealed. So what you're left with is the criminal suit. The idea being, and this is Barr's argument, states are not at liberty to make up on the fly provisions for getting people disqualified from the ballot under the 14th Amendment because if you go back to what Chase said and follow the thread, you have to prove that somebody committed insurrection, either in a civil proceeding or criminal. We don't have a civil proceeding. His argument, Barr's argument, which I think um, Dan would disagree with based on some of the precedents arising out of that period of time around in the 1870s. Barr's idea is that because of Section 5, which gives Congress the authority to enforce provisions of the 14th Amendment, it's up to Congress to enact law to enforce the 14th Amendment. And he would argue that 
states are not at liberty to make up proceedings or to make up, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, lawsuits um, that would allow somebody to enforce the 14th Amendment. But I think whether you agree or disagree with that, the underlying point, which I think is the strongest point, is that there has to be some due process. And it's got to be due process that is reflective of what you would have in a criminal or at least a civil proceeding where somebody has rights, gets to confront witnesses, gets to be represented by counsel, gets to challenge the allegation, probably gets a jury trial. Um, And we're not seeing any of that at the state level. Uh, And I think there is a good argument that it really is for Congress to do this. So so let's uh, go to the Jack Smith case where we've had this uh, immunity argument brewing. You, we, I'm going to say we, Uh, thought the Supreme Court would not take up this expedited review that Jack Smith wanted of this issue. Um, <clears throat> so he's he's back down Smith to the D.C. Circuit where he had a simultaneous um, uh, filing going, and you have a three-judge panel, two-to-one Dem-appointed judges taking this up on a whirlwind basis. What do you expect to happen here? Well, I, I think Trump, Trump's going to lose, but the interesting thing to me is the um, the timing, um, the hijinks that went on with uh, you know Smith. Um, just a, 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 a timeout for uh, listeners here. Why did they stop the prompt that says Siri? Tell me this, Siri. Tell me, I, I, I'm in the middle of talking to you, and like they, my watch starts talking to me. I, um, <laughs> But but I think the last time that we we talked about this, Rich, the last time we had a, a podcast, this was brewing, and um, the reason we were able to to predict that the court, the Supreme Court, wouldn't take this, other than what I think everybody is acknowledges, is the Supreme Court's reluctance to get involved in any of these cases if they don't have to. I mean, they simply don't want to be involved uh, in the politics of the the um, of the twenty twenty four election. But the other thing is, if you're, if you're Smith, I don't think the Supreme Court likes being sort of played cutesy pie with. So he went in, he asked them for expedited review that cuts out the DC circuit. But at the same time to hedge his bets, he goes into the, to the DC circuit and says, just in case I lose in the Supreme Court, would you give me an expedited appeal here? And, you know, the, the issue here is, Trump wants delay. He's trying to push everything beyond election day because if he can get this case not tried prior to election day and he wins the election, he'll be in charge of the Justice Department. They'll just dismiss the case. There won't be any, you know, people keep saying, will Trump pardon himself? If things operate the way that they're supposed to operate, um, he wouldn't have to pardon himself because the Justice Department would just drop the case. Um but even if it didn't, he would be able to pardon himself. But at that point, there wouldn't be a trial. He wouldn't have been convicted. So that's what he's trying to do. He's in delay, delay, delay mode. Um, Jack Smith, for whom this is unseemly, is in put the pedal to the metal mode because I need to get this guy convicted prior to election day. And he keeps saying again and again, I mean, I, I, I just think this is so insulting to the intelligence that he actually went into court, even though because the case is on appeal, Judge Chutkin's not allowed to act on the case right now. She doesn't have jurisdiction over it. But he went into court last week anyway and asked her to order Trump 
to stop saying that it was a politicized prosecution. And I'm like, you know, prosecutors are allowed to make their arguments about what what the facts show. They're not allowed to impose their spin Mm -hmm. on reality. And, for, you know, if Trump wants to say this is a politicized prosecution, he not only is allowed to say that, there's a lot of evidence for the fact that it is. Um, and if it, and if Jack Smith wants to prove that it's not, he needs to get the case to trial and prove it. But, he's, you know, to, to ask a court to tell the litigant to stop saying my politicized prosecution is a politicized prosecution is ridiculous. Um, but he keeps he, he keeps doing that. Um and I, I would just when I point when I say that it's a politicized prosecution, I would again point out to people: Jack Smith has no power as a matter of constitutional law. The power to prosecute someone is the president's power. He was appointed by the Biden Justice Department. He is a delegate of Joe Biden's political power. So mm-hmm. deal with it. You know, I mean, it, it happens that. If you're in a political corruption case, politics is part of the mix and you just have to, to put up with it. But to, to deny that he said in, in uh, one of the arguments that he made that the Biden administration doesn't have anything to do with this because I'm a special counsel and you're a special counsel appointed by the Biden Justice Department who is executing the president's power. Um, anyway, sorry for the rant, um, but no, that in any event, you it was enjoyable. Yeah, yep. enjoyable yep. and informative. I, I I did get it off my chest, so I feel <laughs> I feel better now. Um, but you know, I don't think the Supreme Court likes to be toyed with. So you know, he goes in and asks them to cut out the D.C. Circuit, and at the same time, he goes into the D.C. Circuit and says, "In case they rule against me, please give me an expedited appeal," which they did. Um, they assigned so the Supreme Court dinged them. Um, I think that happened right before, maybe it was right after Christmas. They said they wouldn't, uh, it was right before. And then the Supreme, the DC circuit assigned a three judge panel to the case. Now I think this is random, but it's two Biden appointees and, uh, one of the, uh, uh, elder stateswoman on the court who was, um, judge Henderson, who was still an active judge, even though I think she's in her eighties and was appointed by. Bush 41. Uh, so she's the third person on the panel, but she's on with two Biden appointees. Um, so that's the panel. And they instantly ordered this, um, this, uh, briefing schedule that was so fast that Trump filed his reply brief. We're talking on, uh, today's Thursday, right? So I think Tuesday he had to have his brief in and the argument is next Tuesday, January 9th. So that we'll be talking about that next week because we'll have seen how that uh, argument went. But I expect he's going to lose. So just to, to play out, Rich, what their strategy is, this, the delay, delay, delay strategy, once Trump loses with the three-judge panel, and I bet you they'll decide this quick, probably within a week or two, maybe, maybe less than two, um, what Trump would then do is wait as long as he can. That's as long as this. I think it's 30 days he can drag this out for, and then apply for rehearing on bonk, meaning rehearing by the entire mm-hmm. DC circuit. Now, again, he doesn't think he's going to win that. The DC circuit skews seven Democrat appointees and 11, uh, I'm sorry, 11 judges, seven Democrat, uh, four Republican. So he's not going to win 
in the DC circuit. And rehearing on bonk is something that is like routinely asked for and denied. I think the court won't even, won't even hear it. They'll just deny his application, but it'll give him a chance to extend it for another bunch of days, which means, you know, judge Chutkin can't act on the case. She can't resolve other motions. She can't like get ready for jury selection. She can't, all the things that you would want to be doing in the run up to a trial, she won't be able to do. Um, including, importantly, hold hearings on other motions to dismiss the indictment. Um, so the next thing that then happens is, if the ruling is against him, as I think it will be, he would then have the option to appeal to the Supreme Court. And the big question at that point would be, would the Supreme Court take it? I believe the Supreme Court will not take the case because I, for two reasons. One, I think they can. They will at that point say, we have a thorough ruling from the D.C. Circuit. We're not going to disturb this at this point. If Trump gets convicted at trial, he'll have an appeal, and we can consider the immunity at that point. But we're not going to disturb what the Court of Appeals has done, which you get to do when you have control over your own docket. They don't have to take the case. Mm-hmm. But the second reason I don't think they'll take it is I think they think they have already put in motion the signal they wanted to send to Judge Chutkin to slow down here. And that is when they took, around the time that Jack Smith was trying to get them to expedite consideration of the immunity issue, the court suddenly announced that it was going to hear the appeals of a bunch of the January 6th riot defendants who argue that the application of the obstruction statute to them is unconstitutional. Um, The obstruction statute in that case is the main crime in the Trump case. It's of the four counts, two of the counts are obstruction of Congress. It's 40 years of criminal exposure, the possibility of 40 years uh, sentenced to federal prisons, the main central charge in the case. The court has basically said, we're going we're gonna to hear the January 6th appeal, and we'll decide it by the end of the term. The end of the term is the end of June. So I, I think it would be unseemly, and I don't think she'll do it because I don't think she wants to, I don't think she wants to look overtly political or any more overtly political than she may already look. But it would be a bad look for Judge Chutkin to start a trial on March 4th when the Supreme Court is going to decide the main issue in the case in June, even though it's not going to be done in the four corners of her, mm-hmm. of that prosecution against Trump. So, so that would push her to July or August? Yeah, well, that's the interesting question. I don't, you know, what happens here then? If, if the, let's say the Supreme Court, well, first of all, I think there's a very good chance the Supreme Court um, is going to put the brakes on some of the Justice Department's uses of the obstruction statute. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to endorse an extravagant view of what the obstruction statute applies to. And the reason I think it's important to note that is I think the application of the obstruction statute to violent rioters is less of a reach than the application of the statute to Trump, who isn't implicated in the violence and as to whom the theory of obstruction is basically that he relied on a cockamamie legal theory that that 
you know, Pence had the authority to invalidate mm-hmm. electoral votes, which Jack Smith supposedly is going to prove that Trump knew was false. Um, mm-hmm. You know, good luck with that. But um, I, I'm, I don't think the Supreme Court likes, and I think they made clear, we talked e- extensively about the uh, cases involving the two Cuomo cronies w- that the court threw the convictions out on last year. The Supreme Court does not like this idea of federal prosecutors taking statutes that are meant to apply to specific situations and stretching them to the to the breaking point in order to capture political corruption. And they've slapped that down like any number of times. So, you know, there's a couple of things that that are interesting to watch. One is what's going to be left of Smith's case once the Supreme Court's done with the obstruction statute? Secondly, even if they uphold the obstruction statute, but also if they don't, um, and when I say uphold the statute, I mean the prosecutor's uh, use of it in these cases. Um, let's say they rule, I don't know, June 21st. Um, you'd have to like sort of digest what they said. He may have to rejigger his case. Maybe not. I don't know. But let's say the earliest you could, in theory, start the case if you're going to wait for the Supreme Court was about July 15th. And I think that would be pushing it, right? Um, do you start? If you have somebody who, I guess by then Trump will be the nominee more than likely, right? I don't, I don't remember when the convention is, but it, it'll be all over. The counting will be, mm-hmm. it'll be locked in, right? At that point, probably. Yeah. It, it'll um, be locked in probably in a couple of weeks, Andy, but uh, yeah. Well, well but you know. Time. Formally, yeah. <laughs> I was, I didn't want to, I didn't want to kill us like completely. <laughs> here, <which> was, <laughs> yeah. Um, but like, let's say it's July, let's say it's July 15th. Do you start a three-month trial with the Republican nominee as your defendant on July 15th before, so, so, before so, so the so November say, election? So let's say she's just, she's blown out this year just because just of this timing issue that you're, you're highlighting. That's fascinating that I haven't seen uh, others uh, um, uh, talk about, uh, potentially very consequential. What, what would happen with Bragg? Would Bragg go first then? Would Bragg have a March trial? Well, I don't think Bragg wants to try that case. I, I think it would be more likely that the Atlanta case would try to mm-hmm. get it together and go to trial than than. Bra- I don't think Bragg wants to. That's such a piece of well. Mm-hmm. Um, right. What, <laughs> um, I, I well look for the Democrat standpoint. Even in Manhattan, Bragg's case is so bad that even in Manhattan, Trump has a chance of beating mm-hmm. that case because it's such mm-hmm. a, a preposterous yeah. case. Yeah. So I don't think he's like tripping over himself. I don't see how Judge Cannon can get the case. She's not in a hurry. I mean, she's absolutely nobody believes the the May twentieth trial date. I mean, I assume that if Smith thought he was getting derailed, what he'd try to do is put the pedal to the metal and maybe get the um, get the the Florida case tried. And it, you know, this goes to Chris Christie's made a very good point. I've been critical of Christie lately, but I you know I think this was a very good piece of analysis of his, which is Smith would have been better off junking the classified information counts and then just indicting Trump straight up for obstruction of the grand jury, which is a case you could actually have gotten to trial. It's a two week trial. And if your objective was to get him convicted, that was the way to do it. But now I think he's stuck with this, you know, classified information bonanza, which as we talked about when he first indicted that case, those cases are very hard to get to trial there. 
the judge and the litigants are not really in control of the schedule because the law requires you to litigate all the admissibility issues of the classified information prior to trial, and it allows for appeals. So even if you're trying to get the case to trial quickly, it's hard to do, and she's not trying. You know, nobody thinks May 20 it's a real date, and I think most legal analysts who've looked at that case think the likelihood is that it won't be tried until after the election. So, so, so I'd look at Atlanta, I guess. Yeah, so what I, what I hear you saying, though, kind of the upshot is that we've all sort of taken it as a given that <clears throat> Trump will be a convicted felon at some point this year prior to the election, but that might that might not be true. That might not happen. There's, the, the scheduling might not work. I'd say 30, three, I want to say 35% chance that he gets, uh, if they get one of these cases to try out, look, I think if they can get the reason he's so desperate to push the Washington thing off, even though I think it's a lousy case, mm-hmm. you know, it's a Washington jury and a hostile judge. He's probably going to get convicted of one of the four counts. Um, so there, he's Smith is going to keep pushing to try to get that case tried. Um, yeah. And I don't want to underestimate his determination or what I take to be the judge's determination to right. make that happen. Yeah. Um, and I think Atlanta, you know, it's hard to understand what Trump's doing in Atlanta. He didn't, he hasn't joined Meadows in trying to get the case transferred to federal court. Um, they're still in the motion stage. It's a lousy case. The four people who've pled haven't pled to serious crimes, which I think is a testament to how unserious the case is. But if I thought, you know, is there a case out there that you could gear up and at least cut it into a piece that you could try Trump quickly on? That would be the, that would be the one if you if you were really looking to get him tried prior to the election. But I, I still think the best ch- the best chance is Washington. But it's ver- it's going to be as you can see from our discussion of it. There's a lot of moving parts. So that's all the time we have. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy. Thanks everyone for listening, and thank you, Andy McCarthy. Thanks, Rich.